We're going to be in Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 35. Well, the last time we saw in depth what it means to be sifted, started with Peter, we went into Job, and then we saw our application as believers today. Today we're going to cover Jesus' seeming antithetical instructions given to the disciples when compared to uh, his earlier instructions in Luke 9.3. We see Jesus warn the disciples about what they need to prepare for in his absence, the rough road ahead, a difficult time that they're going to face where the comforts and security once enjoyed while they were with him are no longer available. Now, before we go into the verse, uh, I just want to give you a little history. If you weren't here last week, Jesus just gets done advising the disciples and Peter specifically of their future desertion of him and also the sifting process. Verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you without money, money bags, sack and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a sack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And then they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Wait a minute. Luke 9, 3, he sends them out with a command to take no provisions. Now this, why the paradox? Well, take a money bag, a sack for greater provisions, and a sword. Would that be for protection? There's a lot of questions that specifically swirl around that particular verse, and I know I've misquoted it before, years ago. But let's first break it down through each verse, and then we'll go to the idea as a whole. Verse 37, Jesus quotes Isaiah 53:12 about himself. He says that he will be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is to be arrested and adjudicated as a common criminal. But it has a double meaning. He didn't do anything wrong. Daniel chapter 9 says that the Messiah would be cut off, or cut off, killed, but not for himself, not because of anything wrong that he did. The shepherd will soon be separated from his flock, and judging from their behavior at the Passover meal, it doesn't seem like the disciples were getting the full understanding of this. Is this to say that Jesus was advocating overthrowing the government because times were going to get tough? The answer is no. Romans 13 is in the New Testament. There's continuity of thought there. In verse 38, he says, when they go to bring him the swords, he says, it is enough. Well, it doesn't come out well in the English, but what it means is, forget it, drop it. Two reasons to support this. Because Jesus commands Peter to drop his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is going to get arrested. Peter pulls out the sword and goes to defend him. And he cuts off, you know the story, the, the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus not only heals the guy's ear, but gets to Peter and says, put that sword back in its sheath. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. So it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to tell them to get swords to lead an insurrection. And then shortly thereafter, he stops them from leading an insurrection. Well, it's a good thing that Peter was a fisherman. I don't know if he was aiming, aiming for the guy's head, but... He only got his ear. The second thing is Mark 14:41. it is enough. The same expression is used when Jesus chastises his disciples for sleeping instead of praying. And in the same breath, he says, 
the mob is pretty much at hand. They're, they're upon us. So there's an element in this expression of time. There's no time for this now. In Deuteronomy 3.26, uh, Moses was debating God or maybe pleading with God about why can't I go into the promised land? And God says to him, it is enough. Don't say anything about this anymore. It's too late. So then what is Jesus trying to say to his disciples and what is he trying to say to us? Well, I think to the disciples he's saying to them, listen, the never-ending feasts, the never-ending healings, the one-on-one didactics, the, uh, the safety from government intrusion, it's all coming to an end. Because up until this time, Jesus was a popular rabbi. Wherever he went, we were told that the, he was thronged. You know, the crowds followed him. Uh, he was popular. And, and the disciples likewise enjoyed popularity. They got prideful a few times and Jesus had to correct them. Uh, the religious leaders who really had control for so long were starting to lose their control. So, with, and there was no real government intrusion at the time. But again, all that's coming to an end. There's going to be a new era in the way that the disciples walk with God. The, gri- the bridegroom is going to be taken away. Jesus says that before. He says that the friends of the bridegroom don't fast until the bridegroom is taken away. Then they'll, they'll fast, they'll mourn, uh, they'll miss him. Uh, so there's going to be a point in time where Jesus, the bridegroom, in that allegory is going to be taken away. There's a point in scripture in Luke 23 where he says that the, the green wood is going to turn into the dry wood. And what does that mean is Jesus is the living water. He says the green wood is the time when Jesus, the Messiah, is on the earth. You know, when, when there's, there's life, there's, the living water is there. But he said there's going to be a, a point in time where there's going to be dry wood. And how will people behave then when that living water is removed from the earth and things start to dry out? So he's saying to them, be prepared. Basically, the only sword that's going to help them now is the sword of the Spirit. If you look at Ephesians 6, it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And the sword of the Spirit is one of those pieces of equipment. Obviously not a literal metal sword. Some would argue that even the sword of human government may be represented here. Romans 13 again. We know that Paul, on more than one occasion, used his his status as a Roman citizen for the actual soldiers to rescue him from the mob. So in a sense, the sword of government saved him. But really, this is a picture of Jesus preparing them to leave this comfortable nest and fly on their own. He wants them to grow and mature and build the church on on Christ's foundation. Jesus has been preparing them, his whole ministry, to do this. But now it's coming to a fever pitch or a climax the night before of his crucifixion. And the question is, doesn't God kind of do the same thing with us? You become born again. It's new. It's exciting. God's presence is unmistakable. Confirmations left and right. You're nurtured by the Lord. And then he gets us to a point where he puts, pushes us out of the nest. And not in a bad way, like with birds. You know, eventually the mother bird pushes them out of the nest. You know, fly on your own, right? But it's to cause us to grow spiritually. And I liken this to a parent-child relationship. You have a child and you, you nurture the child and you breastfeed the child and you spoon-feed the child and you comfort the child and you protect the child and all these things, then it gets to a point in time where you do this awful thing to your child. You take your child, 
You're in the living room. Go to the other end of the living room and put the child there and stand him there. And then you move away the coffee table and you move away the couch and you move away everything that that poor little kid could lean on for stability and comfort. And then you do something even more awful. Stay there, little Johnny. And then you walk away. You go to the other end of the living room and you turn around and you go, come on, come on. And the kid's looking at you like, this is awful. I don't really like this. But the kid comes because the kid wants to be back in the security of your arms. And he starts to take his first steps. And he kind of looks like Frankenstein. He stomps his feet and his hands are all over. And my son had such a big head when he was a baby. I thought if he, if he moved too far, he was going to tip over. So the child eventually... <laughs> It's, it's, it's a foot before, the kid's walking and eventually the kid clutches you. He's back in your arms again. But the funny thing is that you clap for the child, you applaud the child, but the child doesn't realize that he did something amazing in those few moments. And what the amazing thing is he took his next step in life. What's the purpose? To torture that poor kid? No to cause them to grow and to mature and bring them to that next step in life. The Christian walk is not, don't let anybody kid you. <laughs> it's not never-ending miracles and never-ending signs and wonders and never-ending emotional highs. That's not what it is. The goal is maturity and completion. Stephen was just up here doing a presentation. We have another Stephen in Guatemala who just re recovered from uh, one of our missionaries from uh, malaria. He didn't even, he, he sends me an email. I, I was wondering if he was still alive. I said, can we fly you to a hospital somewhere? He says, I don't even deal with the doctors in the hospitals down here. They make you worse than when you started. But after four or five days, he, he was healed. And you know what? Is he, is he saying, I want to come back home? No. He's saying that I want to continue loving these people in these Guatemalan villages. I love these people. And the funny thing is, he says, they will never accept me. He doesn't look like a Guatemalan. It's like a nationalistic thing, but he loves them and he's devoted his life to these people. But the thing is, when he was 21, when he was 13, 14, 15, was he ready to do this? No. If somebody told him he was going to do this, would he run the other way? Probably. But God took him through steps in his life, step by step by step. I'm not going to fall off here, but, you know, he's now he's a missionary in Guatemala and that takes a lot to do something like that. Christian, God is still there. God is still accessible. But he may be wanting you to grow in a certain area of your life to get you to that next level in your walk. And as with the disciples, he may be warning you that it may get a little tough. The road may get a little tough. But in the next few verses, we will see that he never leaves us without the tools to achieve the goal that he set for us. The Bible says that he will never leave us nor forsake us no matter how things look around you. Verse 39. And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Here we see Jesus' example of what to do in a trying time. Something that the disciples are going to need to emulate in order to survive when Jesus is taken away. There's two things to note harmonizing the other three Gospels with Luke. And I'm not going to read all the verses, but I'm just going to give you the gist of the harmony there. Number one, the location, post-Passover meal. They had the meal, the Lord's Supper was instituted, and depending on where that upper room was, you in Jerusalem, you would travel east or northeast across the brook Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is really the west side of the Mount of Olives, but still west of Bethany, where he normally retreated to. Now, I find it interesting because the word Gethsemane means oil press. And I remember we talked a little bit in detail about when something is pressed and crushed and afflicted, that good things come out of it. We talked about myrrh. It's the same thing with olives. They would have these presses, and they would put intense pressure on these olives, and the the olive oil, the juices, would come out of that fruit. And then we made the, uh, the parallel with our own lives, how oftentimes when we're pressed and we're crushed, beautiful fruit comes out of us, and God does things with us. But also, he wanted them all to watch and pray. However, he took Peter, James, and John a little further. Three times it records that he went to pray and he came back and found his disciples sleeping. It doesn't appear that any of the twelve commanded uh, or followed the command to watch and pray. Why? Mark says it best, and this is a very common scripture that people quote, the spirit is ready but the flesh is weak. Now, before we're Christians, the, the Bible says, look, you know, I don't want to take the blame for this. I'll say it came from the Bible because it did. But before you are born again, you're a child of wrath. You're a son of the devil. You know, it sounds pretty bad, but that's the truth. You're in sin, okay? But when you become born again, and you, you like to sin, and you look forward to sin, and you're really single-mindedness because, you know, you, that's what you do. That's what you know to do. And then when you become born again, John chapter 3 tells us that we, we, we have a new nature, okay? We have a spiritual nature. We become sons of God. God adopts us into his family, uh, John tells us. So now as Christians, we kind of have the new nature and then we also have tied to our flesh the sinful nature. And sometimes we have these wars. Galatians says that the, the, the spirit is against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit and there's kind of like a battle going on. So there's times where in our spirits we want to do the right thing. Romans 7, Paul says that I want to do the right thing but I end up not doing the right thing. And the things I don't want to do because they're sinful, I end up doing anyway. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay, you start to get the picture there. The spirit and the flesh. We try to do the right thing. We want to do the right thing. We want to please God. But sometimes our flesh gets in the way. And even when it comes to spiritual things, like here, uh, their spirits, they love Jesus, they loved God, they wanted to follow him, but their flesh was weak. And and these are the things that are happening to them. But he didn't want them to fall into temptation. And and temptation from what? What is he talking about? Well, from shrinking back from following Jesus. 
If you look at the book of Hebrews, it's a whole book dedicated to, it's an unknown author, people think that Paul might have written it, but uh, it's a book dedicated to telling the Jewish believers in times of trials and troubles and temptations and afflictions, listen, don't shrink back from, from following Jesus into the old dead system because this, this is life and he tries to show the big picture of who Jesus really is. Don't shrink back from following God's plan for them in the face of intense pressure. But because of their lack of prayer, as we see, when they needed it most, they did shrink back. They scattered, they followed at a distance, and they denied him. He wanted them to watch and pray. People say, pray, pray, pray. In response to everything, almost where it just becomes a trite saying. Whatever you say, somebody says, well, just pray about it. However, prayer is one of the most important survival tools that a Christian can ever possess. I remember we covered a whole Sunday on what prayer is and what isn't, according to the Bible. It's a way of cultivating a relationship with the one that we desire to spend an eternity with. It's our source of strength. And I liken it to um, a marital relationship because the Bible does. The Bible constantly, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, relates marriage Okay, and he makes the parallel with the father's relationship with us as his creation. But in a marriage, you know, people sometimes get funny. Well, we got to pray before dinner or we got to pray again. That's the wrong attitude. If you look at that in a marital situation, if I knew a couple where I was working with a guy and he would say, it's been a few hours, I got to call the ball and chain. You know, she's going to want me to call and want to know where I am. I would look at that as a problematic relationship. You know, I probably talk to my wife, um, don't tell my employer this, hopefully they're not listening, but I don't know, maybe 30 times or more a day during a shift because I, I want that constant communication with my wife. And it's the same thing with God. We pray not because we have to pray, but because we want to pray. We want to get into that fellowship with him, that communion, and to be one with the Father. Okay? Because if that's not our attitude, then we're doing it with the wrong motives. And for us, watch and pray. Don't be tempted to shrink back into self-preservation, especially when it subverts God's plan. For us, we can serve God, we we can worship God. It's a climate-controlled environment. The government is an outside waiting to persecute us. You know, it's a pretty good life that we have here in this country. But there's a temptation to shrink back from following God when pressure comes, when the intense pressure comes from the outside. And he's telling them, you need to watch and pray. To, keep, uh, to avoid that. Now let's look at a model, simple prayer that Jesus utters in verse 42. It's worth reading again. Jesus said, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's a lot of substance in this prayer that it took me about three seconds to read. First part is honesty and supplication. When we come to God, we're, we, we, we come to him in honesty. We reveal our desires to him, albeit maybe they're not in line with his, but we're honest with him. We come before him and we tell him what our heart's desires are. And I think sometimes people unknowingly, and I think what we've all been guilty of, it, try to manipulate God. Well, God, if you heal me of this and you make me feel better, I could serve you more. It's like that's manipulation, you know? But you, you, you're honest with him in the beginning. Uh, The second part of it is, the most important part, is giving your will over to God, which leads to that harmony of your relationship with him. A friend of mine uh, recently went in for surgery, and I visited him at the hospital, 
and he was having major heart surgery. I mean, anything you could imagine they have to do to the heart, they had to do to this guy. And I sat with him the day before he was going to be operated on, and we had a discussion, and he said to me, I have to confess something to you. I like my life. I like the stuff that I have. I, I like everything just the way it is, and I don't want to let that go. He goes, uh, you know, I'm afraid I might not come out on the other side. And I said to him, brother, when I leave, you need to sit and just be with the Lord. And you need to tell him the truth. You need to tell him how you feel, but you have to get to the point where you say to God, not my will, but yours be done. If you choose to take me, you know, right now I'm not comfortable with it, but I want to be in your will. And, um, well, he made it through, which is great. Uh, but we have to get to that point where we give our wills over to the Lord. And that's probably the single most difficult thing that we ever have to do is to give our wills over to the Lord. Because I tell you something, self-preservation is a very strong force. And you might not understand what I'm saying until you're in that position where it could be your life, it could be, uh, it could be the, your job, it could be anything, where there's just a lot of pressure against you and you're tempted to do the wrong thing because you want to preserve yourself and kind of put God on the side for a little bit. In verse 44, it says that, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, it could just be that he was just so stressed out that he, he was sweating a lot and it affected the pores of his sweat glands, but there's also a possibility that he had a condition called hematohydrosis. Now, if you break that down into its Greek counterparts, it just means a condition where there's blood and water. Under great stress, the capillaries rupture and blood mixes with sweat. And it may cause some to wonder, this is, why was the Son of God so stressed out about the cross? He's the Son of God. Well, two things. And the second one, more preponderant, more important than the first. The first one is he was fully God and he was fully man. That's something very difficult for us to understand. Uh, fully God and fully man. And the cross was an excruciating way to die. When we go into the crucifixion, we're going to talk about possibly some of the nerves that were severed when the nails went in and you know the beatings that he took and the painful procedure that this cross um, squeezed out of people. If you take excruciating, the English word, and break it down into its Latin cognates, it means intense torture. Or literally, the word excruciating that we get now literally means from fastening to the cross. So we actually have a, a, an English word that comes from 2,000 years ago about the pain of the cross. That just shows you how bad that pain was. The second thing, again, uh, is I believe the problem that he was facing and the stress was from what was in the cup. God, let this cup pass from me. Well, what was in the cup? What's this whole thing with the cup? The cup in the Old Testament and the New Testament was symbolic of could be cursing or could be blessings in it. In this case, the cup was symbolic of the sins of the world or the atoning portion of actually bearing the sins of humanity that Jesus bore on the cross. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. One verse, it packs a lot of punch. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he, 
meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, this word knew no sin, there's different words in the Greek for to know. Now, in this particular word, it says he knew no sin. Not that Jesus had no idea what sin was, but it was experiential. Jesus had no familiarity with sin by experience. So the Son of God, perfect for, from eternity's past, uh, he's at this point in time in history where he has to bear the sin, the full effect of sin on the world, of the world on his body. And I believe that's the bigger concern than really the pain. Because the pain, you know, he, he, there was a point in time where he, he had all this sin on him and he was sinless. And the father had to turn from him for that period of time. So it's a pretty, pretty heavy thing that, to think about and something that we probably will never understand. Or maybe one day God will teach us, but it's, it's very hard to comprehend what he went through. A few other scriptures, one verse, Isaiah 53, 6. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all onto him. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Hebrews 5, 7 through 8. Speaking about Jesus, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he was on the earth, when he was incarnate, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So, you see what's going on in this picture. And one thing that I also want to take from this is a lot of times, now we can't make the, the parallel 100% all the time here because Jesus was, was an atoning sacrifice and we could never be that. We can't even die for our own sins. Um, but it just shows that you, you can make some parallels in that when we pray, a lot of times it's not to deliver us out of the trial that we're in, but it's to deliver us through the trial. We may still, and there's times that God will deliver you out of trials, but there's times that he, he'll allow you to go through those trials, but you go through those trials with him at your side and him pulling you through, and you become a changed person when you get to the other side. But you've all seen the effects of sin. You've seen the effects of sin in your own life. Now multiply that by how many people are in the world, how many townships, how many states, how many countries. And, to, and throughout history, there's a lot of sin that's been piled up in the world. When you look at the blogs or the news, you just see such a, uh, such a small fraction of the sins that people are committing. But how many aren't reported? How many aren't found out about? Uh, how many are happening in other countries? But now take the cup of all that sin in the world collectively over the millennia and let that sink in. Murder after murder after murder. There were 60 million people that were killed in World War II alone. I'm sure many of it through murderous actions. In one event, in World War II, 60 million. Think of how many murders there were in all of human history. Billions, trillions, quadrillions, who knows? Now, I've got to tell you, 
when I, my first year on the job, 15 years ago when I was a Franklin cop, and I could talk about this because the case has already been adjudicated, but my first year on the job, you know, I don't know what I thought it, being a cop was going to be, but we went to a call of a domestic, and we, it sounded pretty bad. So we were, my training officer and me, doing like 100 miles an hour literally to the call, and we get there and we run up to the place and we kick the door in, and I remember it vividly. It was too late. A guy had already stabbed his estranged wife a few times and she was laying there only to die in front of our eyes. Now, I remember that call 15 years ago like it was yesterday. I could tell you what was on the table for dinner. I could tell you how many people were in the house. I could tell you so much because it's in here somewhere. And if you've ever dealt with a, a tough situation or a crime or something sinful, multiply that, multiply that, multiply that. That was all in the cup that Jesus had to drink. Okay. Well, why did Jesus take the cup? Well, because Adam broke fellowship with God, and Jesus, as the last Adam, came to restore this fellowship, and this was the only way to do it. Hence, that's why the cup couldn't pass from him. There was no other way to reconcile back mankind to God. So this stuff really needs to be taken seriously. This should give us a new perspective on sin that our Savior took upon him in the form of the cross. And really, we should have the perspective not to allow that type of sin to creep into our lives as people of God, to realize that all the sin that even, I don't know how it works out, but even the sins that you're going to commit, Jesus already died for. So it's, it's, it's really a reason to our beloved Savior to not to want to engage in that, to try to you know, be more in the spirit, not in the flesh. Because, you know, we really do despise sin, but we usually despise sin in the lives of others. If I commit the same sin as you commit, you're going to look at me and say, oh, how appalling, it's disgraceful. But now look at your own sin, you know. We do that with each other. Even as Christians, you look at other people and go, oh, they're a Christian. They should know better than that. And, you know, we play the hypocrite at times. So we can see sin in other people's lives, usually our spouses, but, you know, we look at ourselves in a better light, right? See some people laughing back there. And verse 45, going back to Luke 22. The last verse here. He said to them, Jesus said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Well, I think that verse 37 finally sunk in, in addition to Jesus' agony in the garden. Verse 37, if you remember, Jesus said, This must have been shocking for them to hear. And again, they heard it before, but he just keeps making sure that it gets through their heads. He says, for the things concerning me have an end. That's kind of pretty scary. So I think this finally gets to, to sit in to the disciples. It starts to set in, and they end up uh, sleeping because of sorrow. The, the verse before tells us that. Um, no conquering Messiah, that, that beautiful vision that it's gone. No positions in the worldly kingdom. Remember them talking about who's going to be the greatest. Uh, no more debating about who's going to be the greatest, just sorrow at this point. And we can look at human nature and we, look at, we can look at how we get when we become overwhelmed because we're emotional beings. Uh, Proverbs 12:25 it says, the anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. When, when you're just overwhelmed, sometimes you just get the blues. You just get depressed. But one of the manifestations of depressed people is excessive or inappropriate sleep. It's one of the manifestations of being depressed, whether it's clinical or whether it's uh, acute or, or whatever. 
But let's look at the two results that disciples, the results of the disciples and the results of Jesus based on their actions, and let's see what we come to. Number one, Jesus is refreshed from his actions. He's praying, his example of prayer and communion with the Father. He goes to the cross willingly and steadfast. He willingly goes. He doesn't run. He, he, God strengthens him, and he is steadfast. His followers leave him, his best friends in the whole wide world, the ones that were with him the whole time, they, they, they're deserters. And he's by himself going to the cross, and he willingly, like the sheep is led to the slaughter, goes to the cross. But the disciples, on the other hand, because of their inaction, were scattered. They were scattered, they were fragmented, and they went back to doing what they were doing before Jesus. Jesus has to come when he's resurrected and find them and collect them, Right? So you see the two actions based on, or the two results based on actions. Inaction, not watching and praying, and Jesus who prayed and was communing with the Father. So the rough road ahead, Jesus warns his disciples that times would get tough, but he didn't leave them without an example of what to do. His example in the Garden of Gethsemane was a piece of the equipment that he left for them to utilize in difficult times. Similarly, God also wants us to grow in tough times, and it's only by communing, him, communing with him on a regular basis, watching and praying, that we will get through them. Uh, yesterday we had the men's breakfast. It was a good turnout, and one of the things I shared was, um, how did I ever make it before being a Christian? I've been a Christian about 11 years now, and uh, let's see, 28 years old, 28 years, I wasn't a Christian, and I did some really stupid things. And I really had some tough times in my life. And I probably won't share with you how I got through it, because it probably wouldn't be edifying. But I just look back and I say, how did I ever make it without Jesus? So the point is, when given the choice to go through life with him by your side or without him, I can't see why anyone would want to go it alone, because you don't have to. Let's pray. How did I ever...